One great strategy is anytime you find yourself doing what you don't want to do with food, you ate something that was on your don't eat this list, spend as little time as possible in self-attack and self-rejection. Get to the forgiveness place as quickly as you can. A lot of people, what happens is we go against our own wishes. We eat something on our bad list. And if I eat something on my bad list, I usually tell myself, well, that makes me a bad person. And what do you do to bad people? You punish them. So we self-punish. We might self-punish through more exercise, less exercise, taking care of myself intensely or not taking care of myself, eating more food, so or self-rejection, self-attack. So, and some people can do that for months at a time until they find their way back home to self. So instead of it being months, instead of it being weeks, instead of it being days, don't let it be more than a few hours. And ideally, don't let it be more than a few minutes. Give yourself indulgence, self-attack and self-rejection for two minutes, then forgive yourself and begin again. Girl, you've got questions. Questions about your body and how to feel good in it, about your hormones and how to keep them in check. Questions about your sex life and your whole health. Can you imagine having a best girlfriend who was also a triple board certified OBGYN? A girlfriend doctor you could call and ask or tell her anything. Someone who could show you how to live any stage of life before, during, or after menopause in a big, bold, and beautiful way. Well, friends, I'm your girlfriend doctor. I believe you were meant to flourish and shine, to embrace life and awaken to all its possibilities. Let's get there together. Welcome to our show. Welcome back to the Girlfriend Doctor Show. I often hear from clients, look, you know, I just don't have the willpower. I don't have the mindset. I'm just struggling. And it's often excuses. It's often excuses that we make. Are we looking for reasons to fall off track? Are we looking for results? But you know what? Willpower is physiologic. And that is something that I really want to talk about with all of you and my girlfriend doctor community, because we blame ourselves for so much that we don't need to. When we understand the psychology and physiology of eating, it can change our lives. So today on the Girlfriend Doctor Show, I am introducing Mark David, who is founder of Psychology of Eating, and we're going to dig deep into this. So I know you're going to have questions. Don't hesitate to ask away. Welcome, Mark, to the Girlfriend Doctor Show. This episode has been long in the coming. We have been trying to get together for a while, and this topic is so important. And I think it's so important now more than ever because of stress physiology. So um, I want to share a little bit with my audience about you and your background, but tell me, tell us what got you started in this. I think like a lot of us, life got me started through my own challenges. You know, I was born into this world sickly and asthmatic and immunocompromised and almost died a handful of times in childhood. And very early on, probably when I was five or six, I discovered nutrition. You know, I started asking my mother to change my diet at a young age and it worked. I started seeing a result. And nutrition naturally led me into nutrition counseling as a, as a young man. And I quickly noticed that I couldn't really help people unless I understood the mind of the eater because people would come to me and they would be binge eating or emotional eating or overeating. And I'd tell them what to eat and they'd come back and say, I know what you told me. I just couldn't do it. So I realized I needed to study eating psychology and there wasn't any. Really, there wasn't a normal eating psychology. There was eating disorders to look at, but I was wondering what about the rest of us? So I decided to eventually write the book I wanted to read and create the course I wish I could have taken. And it has been gangbusters, right? It has been gangbusters. And your work is translated into over a dozen languages. You've reached worldwide recognition in this area and are the number one sought after expert in this area. So congratulations. Thanks for turning your mess into your message. Thanks, Dr. Anna. I feel very lucky. I feel very blessed. I'm glad to be doing what I do. Well, and, and let's talk about like, like, where does someone get started? How do they know it's psychology versus biology? You know, usually we know it's psychology. Usually when somebody says, I know what I'm supposed to eat, 
I know what I'm supposed to do. I know all the information. I just don't do it. So that tells me that there's something going on in somebody's inner world. Oh my gosh. Did you read my diary this morning? My journal. <laughs> you may have read my journal this morning. I'm telling you, whew, you hit the nail on the head there for sure. It's like, okay. And I didn't mean to cancel my yoga workout, but I did. And, you know, waited way too long to break fast and all that good stuff. Well, you know, here's the thing. When somebody says, I know what I'm supposed to do, I just don't do it. Usually what's going on is that there's another voice inside of us that takes over. We often think of me as me. I'm this one guy. I'm this one person. You're this one woman. But in reality, you're a mother. You're a professional. You're a grandmother. You're a daughter. You're, you might be a sister. You might be a warrioress. You might have your scientist mode. There's the times that you're a girl and the times that you're a child. So there's different voices. There's, there's different archetypes within us. And I think what happens, especially around food, is when people say, I know what I was supposed to do, but, but something happened, something else took over. Well, it's true. Oftentimes there's another voice taking over, another archetype, another persona. It's usually the child in us, or it's the teenager in us. It's the rebel in us. It's the part of us that wants instant gratification. So you could be on it as a professional and you could be totally uh, just, just have your act together when it comes to, let's say, being a mom. But when it comes to food, we might be a seven-year-old or a 12-year-old. And that's the persona in us that's making the choices. You know, and it, I think when you say the rebel, like, you know, I know what I have to do, but I don't want to be told to do it. I don't want to, like, how do you decipher, like, who is that inner child, right? The subconscious, 95% of the time we're acting on our subconscious, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's curiosity. I think it's just being willing to ask questions. It's just being willing to notice, oh, this is me. These are my behaviors. And is it my inner rebel? Am I a rebellious person? And I'll tell you right away, people know when you identify the rebel for them. People know, oh yeah, I've got that rebellious streak, i.e. nobody tells me what to do, not even me. So the rebel in us, really what the rebel in us needs is it kind of needs a good cause. It, it needs a place that's, that's um, usable to put our energy. So for me, I've got a strong rebel streak, but I use it to fuel my professional life. I use it to try to be avant-garde in my work. I use it to find different perspectives and new ways of seeing things as opposed to, oh, let me use the rebel in me to trash my own health or to go against my own best wishes. So it's finding a, a good place to put that energy. Mm, okay, so directing that. So one, one is the rebel. And what are some of the other underlying? I think one of the main ones that's operating is the child within us. I'll often ask a client who tells me, you know, I emotionally eat. And I might ask them, you know, when did you notice that, that this challenge began? How old were you? And usually the person thinks a moment and they say, oh, yeah, I remember I was and they'll fill in the blank. I was seven years old. I was eight. I was 12 years old. Such and such thing was happening at school. I was being bullied or my mom said I was getting chubby. And then all of a sudden I found myself reaching for food, for mm -hmm. comfort, for boredom. And if you can just notice, huh, when did it first start for me? There's a good chance that that's the young person that we are invoking oftentimes when we're making food choices that go against their own wishes. So I'll ask a person, you know, when you're emotionally eating, how old does it feel you are? And I'll ask, it's, it's a playful question. There's no right or wrong answer. And oftentimes people will smile and they'll know right away because the kid in us smiles. The kid in us wants what it wants when it wants it. The child in us wants immediate gratification. If you say to your children or your grandchildren, hey, you can't have ice cream at every meal because eventually it's going to raise your cholesterol level. It might give you fatty liver. It might give you diabetes. Like, like, they're going to look at you like you're an alien. 
Um, they're not concerned with future consequences. The emotional and psychic development of a two-year-old, a five-year-old, a 12-year-old even, isn't thinking of future consequences. And it's probably not till our teens sometime that that concept becomes more viable. Mm. And when it comes to food, food is such a reliable symbolic substitute. Food gives us the thing we want that we can't have in the moment. So if I can't feel good about myself in the moment, if I can't feel happiness, pleasure, nourishment, uh, fun in my life, what do you do? Reach for food. Mm-hmm. Because in the moment, food gives me instant gratification. I feel good. Mm-hmm. Food is instant pleasure. Well, and isn't it true, like the distension of our stomach increases oxytocin? So the hormone of love bonding and pleasure and connection. So we, we can binge to get that hit or we can eat to get that hit. And the same thing, we find that fasting and feasting gives us that hit. Mark, Laura from my Facebook community, she wrote in and she goes, Dr. Anna, how do I combat eating when I am anxious or bored? How do I combat eating when I'm anxious or bored? Great question. I would want to, here's what I would say. First of all, let's reframe the question. Let's not fight eating. Let's not combat eating because anytime you're combating yourself or fighting yourself, who's going to win? It's sort of like one hand fighting the other. So a lot of times it's the question that we ask and how we use language that helps determine the outcome. So part of it is saying, you know, how do I make a better choice when I'm feeling, let's say, boredom? And first, first step, and the person's already answering their own question, first step is to A, realize that I am doing that, awareness. Oh, wait a second, I'm bored and I'm about to eat. So that's awareness. Normally, if I'm emotionally eating, if I'm eating to alleviate boredom or stress or fear or anxiety, a part of us goes unconscious. Part of us goes to sleep. Part of me checks out. So the idea is to check back in. And the way we check back in is inviting in awareness, inviting in consciousness, asking the question or noticing, I'm about to eat when I get bored. Oh, I do that, don't I? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What else? There's the question. What else can I do in this moment? It might be helpful to write down an inventory. You know, as soon as you finish listening to this conversation, write an inventory of everything other than food that helps you feel engaged or relaxed or pleasured or nourished. Everything in life, persons, places, things, thoughts, experiences, uh, listening to music, stretching, speaking to a friend, watching cute animal videos, whatever it is. And there's your list, there's your inventory, there's your menu of things you can turn to when normally I would reach for food when I'm bored or when I'm anxious. Here's your list of what else. So it's introducing consciousness because oftentimes the habit called I eat when I'm bored, Mm -hmm. it's automatic. It just does itself. You don't have to wake up in the morning and say, I really need to strengthen my emotional eating habit. Such habits tend to be automatic. They do themselves. They're unconscious. So in order to change any unconscious habit, once again, we just need to bring in consciousness, bring, turn on the lights a little bit. Well, and I think like when we are stressed, right, when that cortisol is high, that's got to affect our ghrelin hormone, right, our hunger hormone. It has to be that anxiousness, right, that anxiousness can stimulating cortisol and cortisol stimulating glucose. What's like in... And that stimulating ghrelin, like how does that play in or, or leptin resistance or, you know, how does that play into our hunger hormones? Well, here's what I've noticed. And, and this is just polling people over the years and polling people over the years. If I'm speaking to a room of 100 people, how many people here tend to eat more when they're under stress? About 80 percent of people raise their hands. They eat more when they're under stress. How many people eat less when they're under stress? Yeah, it's about 15 or 20%. And then I'll ask the question, how many people will do one or the other? (laughs) You know, when you're stressed, you'll either eat more or you won't eat. And it kind of depends somehow. And about 25% of people raise their hands. So 
I think I'm not sure what's happening hormonally other than when we're accelerating stress hormone chemistry, when we're accelerating cortisol, we know we're feeling stress. So cortisol is, is pumping up my heart rate, my blood pressure. It's going to make me feel alert. That's good news. Enough of it backed with my anxiousness is going to make me feel more anxious. And in that state of anxiety, my brain takes over, my primitive physiology takes over, and I want to seek pleasure. I want to be out of pain. And we need something to take us out of pain in the moment. And I think what happens is the mind instinctively goes to food. I mean, think about it. If you, if you look at any tiny infant, they're screaming, they're upset. Oh, did you hear my grandbaby right now in the back? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a good cue. That was intuitive. <laughs> so that, so if, a, if, a, if an infant is tiny and screaming and upset, the moment you give them mama and mama gives them bottle or breast, it, it takes seconds. Mm -hmm. And we completely, the infant relaxes. And to that infant, it is being touched, fed, loved, held, all at once, and to the as yet developed nervous system, all those sensations are like one. Mother is touch, mother is food, food is love. It's all one experience. And I believe that we have ingrained in us, not only from a genetic perspective, from, but from this lifetime, you know, you remember in your cells, feel bad, eat food, feel better. Mm -hmm. That's right, that's right, and, pleasure. You know, and one of the challenges is that we're often eating when we're under stress, i.e. we're eating when cortisol is high. And cortisol has this interesting feature where it tends to blunt pleasure. So cortisol will desensitize us to pleasure. Why? Because in, in a true survival stress response, you're running from a lion you don't need to be sidetracked looking for chocolate. You don't need to be finding a fluffy, pleasurable pillow. You want to have all your pain receptors active. You want to know, am I being eaten? Am I being bitten? Am I bleeding? So pleasure is not high on the list in, in a true survival moment. So if I'm eating under stress because I had a stressful day at work, what happens is cortisol is high. It's blunting my experience of pleasure. So if I eat the chocolate cake, I actually have to eat a little bit more than usual in order to feel the pleasure I would get from it had I been relaxed when I ate it. So a lot of people will say, oh my God, I can't control my appetite. I eat so much more than I think I should, but we're actually being physiologically driven to eat more because we're trying to get that pain reduction and that pleasure enhancement but we're working against a physiology that's not quite experiencing pleasure to its full normal capacity. Oh my gosh, it's a clear picture there. It's really brings a clarity to that. Now, what are some of the underlying, like I would say willpower is physiologic too, right? So there are nutritional factors that affect emotional eating. Here's what I've noticed about that. I think this is such an important question because a lot of people think, here I am emotionally eating, I must be a willpower weakling, something's wrong with me. Now, true it is, many people who emotionally eat, there might be very emotional reasons for it. But there's a subset of people, and I think it's a big subset of people, who if we're chronically dieting, i.e. chronically underfeeding, and we're simply just not getting enough energy, enough nutrition, enough calories from our diet, what's going to happen? At some point, the brain is going to scream hungry. Brain is not smart enough to tell you, hey, you're chronically dieting, you're underfeeding, you need to do a different nutritional strategy. No, as soon as you're sensitive and vulnerable and aware, the brain is going to scream hungry because it's sensing nutritional deficit. And so we eat. We're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a physiologic drivenness to eat that we think, oh, it's a willpower issue. Something's taking over. It's the wolf in me. Well, actually, no, it's your, it's your brilliance taking over. It's your survival intelligence taking over. Here's the other piece. A lot of people follow different kinds of diets. If I'm following a very low-fat diet, because I have the belief 
fat is bad. And the lower the fat I can eat, the better I will be at losing weight. I might end up EFA, essential fatty acid deficient. Mm -hmm. Once again, if a human being is EFA deficient, I've seen it time and time again with people going on low fat diets, they will intensely crave food and they'll eat and it looks like an emotional eating experience. Mm -hmm. But what it really is, it's a nutritional course correction from your brain driving you to eat. And the brain will sometimes drive us to eat the thing we're deficient in, like fat, but not always. A lot of people, they're nutritionally deficient in fat, but they'll just reach for sugar mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Same, same for people on a low-carb diet. If we're going too low-carb for our body and we're intensely craving carbs, once again, that could look like a willpower failure. But it just might be the body calling for fiber. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a good point. And that is definitely what I found in like my keto green way and my methodology is we, especially women in perimenopause and beyond, you know, our, our hormones are shifting. So really nourishing our body becomes even more important and nourishing our body, but like cutting out the carbs, but still having a healthy quantity of low carbohydrate, vegetables, fiber, herbs and spices, fermented foods, things that feed the gut to feed the brain, right? Like we have to feed the gut to feed the brain and keep it happy and healthy. And then the keto part is being able to have enough healthy fats and good quality protein. So we feel more satiated. And what I've seen is then we can work on that muscle of intermittent fasting. Then we can work on just two or three meals a day and no more snacking. And those are, those are things that help with certainly helping with willpower because it, your body doesn't have those cravings anymore. And, and clients will tell me, you know, I have to, have to remember to eat now. And, and that becomes a part of a part of a big difference. I mean, I tell you, Mark, I used to go to bed, sleep, thinking about food and wake up thinking about food. I remember over a decade ago, my ex-husband said, man, you just think about food all the time. And it was true. I did. And I was a busy OB waking up at four, five, six o'clock in the morning, running to the hospital on a cup of coffee and eating in between patients when I could and thinking, gosh, what's going to be for dinner? What's going to be for breakfast? And it was a high adrenaline, high cortisol type of lifestyle. And I was really overweight. At one point, I was well over 240 pounds. And it wasn't constant. It was like, you know, unhealthy eating and cravings it was terrible. You know, you just described so many people like stay-at-home moms who are really busy and taking care of kids, or especially moms who are working and then coming home and taking kids. So people have a very busy schedule. And food is kind of a nuisance that you have to squeeze into the schedule. And when you do squeeze it in, you do it really fast. And what's happening is we never truly have an eating experience. So when you are a busy medical student, a busy resident, you don't have the time to sit down and have the human experience called pleasure and nourishment and just a soulful eating experience. That's what tends to separate us out from the animals and from other creatures is animals tend to feed. Humans, we eat. We're eaters. We love the culture of eating and the pleasure and the sensation that we get from food is, is literally a requirement for us. And when we don't get that pleasure, the sensation, the nourishment, we're going to constantly be thinking about food because we're missing something. We're deficient in an eating experience. First time I went to Europe when I was young, I went to Italy and I couldn't believe it. You know, businesses would close down at lunchtime for a few hours and my Italian friends, we would just hang out for two hours eating a meal and sitting around and drinking a glass of wine. And my digestion was so good. <laughs> I was so happy. My body felt so energized and so amazing. And I realized, oh my goodness, um, I am missing something profound from my nutritional equation. And it literally has less to do with the food and more to do with my experience of eating. I love that example. You know, we talk about longevity factors and 
Well, always talk about red wine as as a you know with resveratrol, and that's a uh, longevity um, nutrient or antioxidant. But I'm like, is it the red wine, or is it the table of your friends and family that's you know sitting with you and laughing and talking and enjoying each other's company? I mean, that's oxytocin. That's the power. That's the most powerful longevity hormones. What you experienced in Italy, and then also a two hour meal. I mean, you're not going to get a 20 minute lunch. Forget it. There's no way. It's an experience that I find as an American, I miss so much. And I, and I really have to focus on creating that because we live in a culture, we live in an environment where we talk about fast food as if it's just the food itself that was made quickly. But fast food really means, A, you make it quickly. Chances are you grew it quickly, you processed it quickly, and then you eat it quickly. And then you move on quickly to the next experience. And there's not a lot of room for body wisdom in all of that. I think that's, that's so often a missing piece. You know, when you go on a new diet, when you go on a healthy diet, am I present enough and listening to myself enough to feel the benefits, to notice that? Mm, that's so good. And so that's what working into lifestyle factors and the psychology of eating. So what are some key lifestyle factors that really do affect how we think or feel about eating? You know, I think the most important lifestyle factor when it comes to so many eating challenges that people face is this thing that I mentioned briefly, which is fast eating. Yeah. Now, fast eating sounds like, okay, it's a habit, eat fast. But here's the challenge with fast eating. Fast eating alone by itself is a stressor. It's considered by the body to be a stressor. So right now, if you and I are completely relaxed, we're in the best mood possible, and somebody places a nice meal in front of us and says, okay, here's the experiment. You have to eat that nice meal in five minutes. And the body's going to see you already. You're like, whoa. So the body will go into stress. And, you know, that's, that's part of our mammalian evolution. If you notice carnivores in nature, once they make a kill, there's every other creature trying to go in on their meal. Mm -hmm. Every other carnivore wants to steal their food. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times in nature, you have to eat quickly. Animals are eating in a stress response, but that's normal for them. It's not normal for a human being. So when I'm eating in a stress response, I'm in sympathetic nervous system dominance. As soon as, as soon as the sympathetic aspect of the nervous system takes over more than the parasympathetic, digestive capacity will be decreased. Appetite dysregulation will be on the increase. If I'm under stress in the moment, I'm producing more cortisol. So I'm producing more stress hormones. If I'm doing that day in and day out, that can potentially signal the body to store weight, store fat, not build muscle. But in the moment, digestion is down and appetite regulation decreases in a full-blown stress response. When a lion is truly chasing you, digestion is completely shut down. Right, right. So, but the stress response is a graded response. So depending on the intensity of the stress, that's how much digestive shutdown will be in. So technically, even in moderate stress, we'll be excreting nutrition. We'll be excreting minerals through urine and perspiration. We could be excreting vitamins through just, just um, feces. And it's, we're not in the optimum state that we were designed to eat. So what happens is if I eat a meal quickly, the brain doesn't have enough time to register taste, pleasure, aroma, satisfaction, the visuals of a meal. And we need that. There's something scientists call cephalic phase digestive response, cephalic of the head. So cephalic phase digestive response, again, it's a fancy term for taste, pleasure, aroma, satisfaction. When you look at the sum total of all the research on the head phase of digestion, what, what, what will be told is that about 40 to 60% of your digestive power at any meal comes from the head phase of digestion. So when you look at a food, your mouth might start to water. When you think of a favorite food, your stomach starts to churn. That's digestion beginning in the mind. So if I eat a meal in two minutes, what, what often happens, you just ate a big meal. For a lot of people, your belly will feel full, but your mouth is still hungry. 
So brain in the belly, enteric nervous system is raising its hand and saying, whoa, stomach distended, big meal in here, full. And the head brain is going, but well, time out. I don't remember eating. I don't remember pleasure, satisfaction, aroma, hungry. And usually the head brain wins out in that discussion. And we reach for more food. Once again, we think it's a willpower issue, but really what it was, it's an awareness issue. I wasn't present when I was eating. I was out to lunch, so to speak. I'm multitasking. I'm doing something else. I'm not paying attention. Absolutely. I experienced that. Absolutely. Like you're just, wait, did I just eat this? Wait, I, I'm not satisfied. I experienced no pleasure with this. And yeah, me have a second helping. It's not different. I think from if you're, if you're in a conversation with your good friend and you notice that your good friend is distracted, they're on their cell phone, they're texting, they're multitasking and you're trying to have an intimate conversation. And what's gonna happen is if they're not paying attention, you're gonna walk away from that conversation dissatisfied. Oh my gosh, I was on a date like that recently. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. You don't wanna repeat that experience no. on a date. Yeah, that's an easy way to cross somebody off your list. <laughs> so true, so true. And that again, that comes to joy and, and to experience being in the present moment. All right. So now what do like, what are some great strategies on how we can understand Like you had said awareness, number one, first be aware that it's the anxiety or the anxiousness or the lack of pleasure, or you were just too busy during this meal. So what are some of the strategies that we can do to enhance our, um, I, I guess it's, it's, I keep using the word willpower. Is that the right word? You know, I don't think of it as willpower. I, I, I think of it more as having the kind of relationship with food where we feel free, we feel natural, our appetite feels natural, and I'm not going against my own instincts by eating more than I think I should be. So, so for me, we've, we've, we've kind of covered some of the key ones. We've talked about becoming a slow eater, and slow doesn't mean just a speed. Slow means present, aware. Slow means sensual. If you really, you know, most people I talk to and I say, do you like food? Most people say, I love food. Love food. Love it. So I will then say, well, if you love food so much, why do you want to get it over so quickly when you eat? Why do you want to eat a meal fast? That's like me saying, I love sex. I love sex so much. Let's, let's do it in 60 seconds and get it over with. Mm -hmm. No, you want to make it last. You love vacation. You want to make it last. You want a long experience. So when we make the eating experience full and sensuous and enjoyable, we feel more satiated, which means my appetite is naturally regulated. I'm less prone to emotionally eat. I'm less prone to overeat. I'm less prone to binge eat. And all those things will help you modulate and your weight and find your natural weight. I think the other thing is to notice, especially for people who find themselves using food emotionally. To me, emotional eating simply means I use food to regulate my emotions. I have unwanted emotions and I'm using food to make myself feel better. So the question I'm always asking is what else can I do in this moment? Because there's times I just want to open up the refrigerator and eat something. I don't want to deal with my upset. I don't want to deal with my stress. And sometimes I have to urge myself a little bit. And for me, that, that's usually, for me, it's listening to music. For me, it's having a conversation with my partner. For me, it's, it's watching sweet, enjoyable animal videos. That's how my system, or it means taking a walk and getting out in nature or doing some deep breathing. So asking yourself, what else? Here's the other thing. I find for a lot of people who complain of binge eating or emotional eating or overeating, What's often happening, or people who say they have a sugar addiction or a chocolate addiction, not always, but oftentimes food or sugar or chocolate is the best thing we have going. It's the best pleasure I have in my life. Everything else is kind of stressful. Mm -hmm. Everything else is, I don't like my job. I'm not satisfied with my relationship life, whether I'm married or in a relationship or single. And... I don't have my passions or my hobbies. And then all of a sudden, the best thing in my day is chocolate. 
And for that person, for that person who comes to see me and said, and, and says, I, I just eat so much chocolate. And then I look at their life and I find out chocolate's the best thing you have going. I can't take that away from somebody. But what I can ask them to do is let's start to be in the conversation of making your life more interesting. Like literally, how do we make your life better? How do we make you the best version of you so that we downsize the importance of food as opposed to fighting food? Let's, you go, okay, eat the food. Emotionally, when you eat, eat the chocolate. And at the same time, how do we start creating more intimacy in your life? How do we start creating more passion? How do we create more interests? How do we find a better job for you, a better career, meaningful work, meaningful interactions. Because when people are being fed by the rest of their life, food starts to become less of a need, less of a crutch. And is that also true in people that aren't eating enough, like just not spending enough time eating? Or is it just true in eating too much or having crutch foods or craving foods? I think it's more true for people who don't eat, who, who are eating too much, who think they eat too much. Generally speaking, people who aren't eating enough, they're either not paying attention and they're moving really fast. And they're the, the small percentage of people who don't eat when they're stressed or anxious or moving quickly. So that usually requires a different kind of conversation. Yes, I can imagine that too. And you know, what's something that happened with me, and I think I, we started to talk about this when we had our conversation a couple months back. And it was that when I found out that I was becoming a grandmother, when my daughter had her first positive pregnancy test, it was things shifted for me. And it was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a grandmother. And what does that mean? And when the baby was born, I was doing things like, you know, first of all, skipping my workouts, bringing chocolate croissants. My mom was a baker. My mom passed away when my firstborn was only a year and a half old. And I never knew my grandparents. And then like, it took me a couple months, the baby's only four and a half months right now. So it, this is all recent. Like it took me a couple months to realize like, oh my gosh, my concept of a grandmother is sick and dead. That's my concept of a grandmother is sick and dead. And you know, what does that mean? And that like, for us growing up, I mean, baked goods and food. My mom was a diabetic and she died very, very young as a consequence of diabetes. And so it was that realization. And it was like, okay, I, you know, I was cutting out my workouts. I was buying more carbs. And I, you know, for years I was really, I mean, hundred percent keto green and, and really working on that. So those French pastries and these delicacies and making these, you know, comfort foods, these foods, I think my mom would have made if she was alive. And it, it just opened my eyes to that. That was, that blew my mind. Where did that come from? Hmm. I love this conversation. I, I think what it points to is that our relationship with food connects us to our lineage. And I think this is especially true for women. I think it's true for men as well, but I think it's especially true for women because for so many eons of time, women are, first of all, the biological nourishers. So your, your body is designed to nourish an infant. And then culturally, in so many different cultures, women have been the nourishers, the cooks and the preparers. And there's a beauty there. There's a lineage that wants to come through us when we become parents, when we become grandparents. The lineage of your grandparents is now speaking to you, and it's going to speak to you in ways that you can most easily understand. And food connects us. Pleasure connects us. Nourishment connects us. I find that, you know, my, both my grandmas made the world's most amazing chicken soup. And every time I have chicken soup, I am transported back in time. And I feel like I'm sitting with my grandmas who were both just incredibly loving and just unconditional. And I'm, I'm in bliss. I'm in heaven just from eating a food yeah. <laughs> that has an association. So it's just a great way to learn about yourself. And, you know, I, I would be asking myself, what can I bring from my lineage into this new relationship I have with my granddaughter. Like, what are the good things from the lineage that really wanna be brought forth? And what are the new things you wanna introduce into that lineage? 
of grandma, grandchild that, you know, is based on all the amazing knowledge and wisdom that you've learned in this lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had to reframe what being a grandma looks like and feels like, because again, you know, for me, it was sick or dead, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so reframing that. So it's a constant, like understanding how, gosh, how active our subconscious is. It's really become very conscious when I wake up in the morning is to visualize myself at 70, 80, 90, 120, but doing super fun things and, you know, being lean and, and dancing and climbing mountains and energetic to reframe the concept that I've had unknowingly about what a grandma really, really was. And then again, it doesn't help to search grandma gifts, you know, those little cartoons <laughs> on the internet. They're terrible. I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. That is just wrong. That is just wrong. You know, and I think one of the, you know, other pieces is like the concept, like I thought about this the other day because in my in my keto green community right now we're doing one of the plans from menu pause and we're doing the cleanse plan so it's all it's all smoothies liquids i'm drinking bone broth and having smoothies and really get a very very balanced and our, our lemon liver flush and all kinds of good stuff and i was like you know what i just want to have tequila on the rocks or a glass of wine and sit and watch the sunset and that craving was really strong because that's comforting that's relaxing but i'm like oh it's going to you know like how much does it interfere with my goal for this six-day cleanse? It's only six days. So I had this battle with myself, and I would love to, love to hear your input on that. How do we stop that battle and, and you know, affect, so that we're affecting good health? What an, interesting, what an interesting conversation. You know, what I have found is that oftentimes when we go on a cleanse or a fast of any type, it is easier to crave foods from our past. As the body cleans out, memories tend to emerge. And there are memories that are associated with certain foods. If I go on a cleanse, I will start to crave hamburgers from the fast food place that we used to get hamburgers from when I was 10 years old. Otherwise, I never even think about it. So part of it is that fasting and cleansing will bring up memories. And it's not just memories of food. Sometimes fasting and cleansing can cleanse us of unhappy memory. It can, it can start to cleanse us of past hurts or wounds or even traumas. So the cleansing experience is, to me, it's not just a physical one. You know, traditionally, when, you know, Native Americans, when the prophets of old, you know, in biblical times, went into the woods or the desert to fast, they didn't do it to clean their liver and look good in a bikini. They did it to have a connection to a higher power. They did it to get a vision. And oftentimes in order to do that, a part of us has to unwind. A part of us has to clean out. So release, so, to release that connection, yeah. that energy, that stored stagnation. Exactly. So I just noticed that that happens. And also, you know, it might be helpful in times of craving to also notice that, yeah, having the tequila and watching the sunset, there is a certain beauty to that. And it's not necessarily wrong or bad. It's just a very powerful association and it's a powerful memory. And maybe you save that for when you're not on the cleanse. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely do. So I think that, and in, have you noticed any difference in menopause and, and post-menopause with more psychological issues around eating because of the protective neuropeptide progesterone declining? Yes, that's, I find that's, you know, one of my biggest challenges over the years in seeing clients is working with menopausal women because when there's weight gain, there's, it's, it's upsetting. And oftentimes the upset takes front and center. So on the one hand, a woman is going through menopause, which is its own experience. Own transformation. Yes. Uh, so it's a transformation that's physiologic. It's a transformation that's personal, that's emotional, that's spiritual. So it's a big experience. And if person's gaining weight, oftentimes the weight challenge 
becomes the overall deity for the experience. And all I'm focusing on is the weight. And all I can see is the weight. And yeah, okay, let's, let's do what we can for sure. And let's also not miss the importance of this experience. This is a powerful transition. Mm-hmm. Who are you? Who's the person you're becoming? What are you letting go of from the past? Yeah, you're letting go of your childbearing years, but what else are you letting go of? What about your life are you letting go of? What about your past are you letting go of? And what are you embracing into the future? To me, that's ultimately more important than, oh my God, the weight. And again, it's not that the weight isn't important. I just want to make sure it's, it's where it belongs in the pecking order of things. So it doesn't create so much stress that the person's, you know, becoming cortisol dominant because of stress, because of anxiety and fear around weight gain, which then makes it even harder to lose weight. So it's the challenge of how does one relax into such a powerful life transition, such a powerful physiologic transition instead of stressing into it. So true. And I I love how you say that it's uh, what do we embrace in this transition? What are we embracing, letting go of that things that no longer serve us and embracing what the future brings to us. And like you said, you know, why are prophets of old and in spiritual times, we fast to get that higher spiritual connection with God and, and how that this transformation into menopause makes us even better able to do that. To have, and that's why so many women, like I look at women who have created amazing spiritual experiences and, and books and journeys and, and my, you know, like from orphanages to mission driven projects and we're postmenopausal. I mean, postmenopausal, and I think it is. And, and for me, I know that when I'm in this personally, when I'm in this ketogenic state into ketosis and alkaline, that combination. I have this higher spiritual enlightenment. And I I mean, I couldn't be here today with this amount of clarity without that. Oh, yeah, guys, if I think, I mean, I had such brain fog and, oh, it was, I was spiraling, anxiety, depression. I felt like I was in a black hole in perimenopause. And until I learned the physiology, this keto, for me, it's the keto green or keto alkaline way, that clarity, that fog lifted. So it's, it, you know, it takes more than hormones to fix our hormones. And this component is, is key. And yet I know in my community, many struggle with the concept of willpower, struggle getting into it, struggle letting go of things that are no longer serving them, like the, you know, high amounts of fruit and granola each day, for instance, is a big one. And like, wait, you know, not every day, but just not every day. Let's, let's, let's shift here. But being able to let go of, of things that are no longer serving us and how I can support them in this journey. What a beautiful way to put it, you know, how in the postmenopausal years, you become a whole different kind of creative being because all the energy that the body was bringing forth to create life, to create baby now has to go somewhere. And that energy wants to go, I think, into giving one's gifts in the world. You know, that's, that's what we all do in our queenhood, in our kinghood years, is we become royalty. We give our gifts. I love that. I love that. Mm-hmm. So true. And feed into our legacy and our communities and those around us. Ideally, if we're feeling good. All right. I'm, I could take up all your time all day. What are some things that a couple things, strategies that you can live, uh, leave people with that are listening now? One great strategy is anytime you find yourself doing what you don't want to do with food, you ate something that was on your don't eat this list, spend as little time as possible in self-attack and self-rejection. Get to the forgiveness place as quickly as you can. A lot of people, what happens is we go against our own wishes. We eat something on our bad list. And if I eat something on my bad list, I usually tell myself, well, that makes me a bad person. And what do you do to bad people? You punish them. So we self-punish. We might self-punish through more exercise, less exercise, taking care of myself intensely or not taking care of myself, eating more food. So, or self-rejection, self-attack. So, and some people can do that for months at a time until they find their way back home to self. So instead of it being months, Instead of it being weeks, instead of it being days, 
Don't let it be more than a few hours. And ideally, don't let it be more than a few minutes. Give yourself indulgence, self-attack and self-rejection for two minutes, then forgive yourself and begin again. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. And we can be so our worst critic, right? And that sends us on another spiral altogether. All Mm -hmm. right. So I'm going to now I have my rapid fire questions for you because my audience love these and they can be a little embarrassment, embarrassing. Are you good with that? Let's do it. All right. In the Girlfriend Doctor community, we have four pillars, nourish, shine, awaken, and embrace. So with nourish, what is your favorite? What's your comfort food? My comfort food is potato chips. Salt and vinegar or just plain? (laughs) Just salt. If I have potato chips in the house, they will be eaten that day. I love salt and vinegar. Okay. And now shine. What is something that keeps you shining on the outside, keeps your appearance handsome and sexy? And what is something you do each day to make yourself shine? Ever since I've been about 18 or 19 years old, I do cold showers in the morning. And I don't think all I, cold or hot, then cold. I'll do hot, then cold, and then hot, and then cold again. I'll always finish up with cold. I'll jump in cold rivers, cold oceans, but at the very least, I'm doing a cold shower. And I feel it just, in, I feel invigorated. I feel it invigorates me. I always think I look better. Maybe it's because I feel better, but <laughs> that's what that's I tell myself. Great. Cold say, showers. Yes. I love it. You're the first one to give me that one. And awaken. And I, my mom always said, travel is one of your best forms of education. So what's next on your travel itinerary? Next on my travel itinerary, I'm going to Ireland for the first time. It just happened. Wasn't even on my bucket list, but you know, a relative's having a destination wedding there, and all of a sudden I'm really excited and I'm looking at pictures of Ireland and woo, there's some beautiful scenery there. Oh, beautiful. That's awesome. That sounds great. That's on my bucket list. I haven't been yet. I want to do a bicycle tour through Ireland. That's my goal. Okay. Now intimacy and embrace the fourth pillars embrace. So what's your favorite sexual position, Mark? Favorite sexual position. You know something? (laughs) I am such a traditionalist in that way, but I'm going to say I'm about 60, 40. I love being on top and I love being on the bottom. So there we go. Over the years, being on the bottom gets better and better. Oh, I tell you, that is so good. Oh, so funny. I love it. Thank you so much for playing with me today and being on the show. And tell our audience where they can get a hold of you. And we'll certainly put links to your website and social on, on um, the show notes. Yeah, thanks for asking. Psychologyofeating.com. That's our website. You'll get all kinds of information there. You can find us on Facebook on YouTube, just put in psychology of eating or Institute for the psychology of eating YouTube, Facebook, and the psychology of eating podcast, which you're going to be a guest on. I do client sessions. I do great interviews. So all kinds of good free content. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, I love your podcast. I've been binging it lately. Oh, to use the eating word. All right. That's a good one. one. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. You guys, psychologyofeating.com. Find Mark David. He is amazing. As you can see, his books, his information, his podcast. And don't forget to, you can ask or tell me anything. I want to hear your questions. This podcast was curated because of your questions about willpower and eating and cravings and how we can be empowered through this time of our life in menopause and beyond. So I am I'm thrilled to be your girlfriend doctor. Thank you. Don't forget to go to my podcast page and uh, wherever you listen to pod, listen to podcasts and give me your feedback. Give me your five-star rating. I love it. I love to hear your comments, read what you've written and encourage you to share this episode. There's someone you know in your life that will really benefit from this. So thank you all for being here to get today and more next time.